This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Right field. Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Check in with Greg Murphy. Murphy, got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Glove Stories with Murph, brought to you by the Parks Casino Sportsbook app. And we are really excited to have this week's guest on. I know we're going to get some great glove stories out of this guy because he's a great storyteller. We know that already. We've seen him on TV and radio after his playing career. But uh, really happy to have him right here after 11 years in the big leagues. Uh, three with the Philadelphia Phillies. A wild thing. Mitch Williams joins us here on Glove Stories. Mitch, good to see you. You too, Murph. All right. So, uh, you know what? Let's go back to uh, where it all started. I, you know, it, I've always, I get interested in, in finding out how the path to the, to the major leagues happens for guys like yourself. Um, so often, you know, sports is a big part of your life growing up, and it's not just baseball. When, what, what was early, the early days for you like in high school? And uh, were you a three sport star, or did you concentrate on baseball? What did you do? I, I was a three sport athlete. I was not a star. <laughs> uh, I was a very average football player that was too slow to play, but loved the game. Uh, I wrestled, okay, which uh, didn't lead to a real good career for me. <laughs> and, and then I played baseball. My brother signed the year before I did. He was a, a senior in 81. Milwaukee Brewers drafted him in the fourth round. And that's how I got noticed. My junior year, they'd call the school and ask who was pitching. They'd say, Williams, they'd show up and it'd be me and not my brother. So I got noticed my junior year. Going into my senior year, it was a little rocky. Uh, First game after my junior year of high school in Legion ball, I threw a fastball and snapped my elbow in half. They told me at the hospital that night, though, that it was only strained, so it would take a week off from pitching and just play first base, which I did. Finished out the summer, pitched the rest of the summer with it, and then I was a starting quarterback my senior year and four games into football. My father had seen enough of me getting destroyed, so he making me quit, and I told him I'd quit. Only if he took me to the uh, orthopedic surgeon and had my elbow looked at because I knew the difference between heart and sore. Yeah. Sure, sure enough, I got there and it had been broken for four months. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it wasn't a lot of fun when I was trying. I either had to get a scholarship or get drafted or right. go to work at a gas station after I got out of high school. So <laughs> that, those are my choices. And I had two surgeries right before my senior year of baseball started. I had uh, a six inch screw and then a bolt and put into my arm to screw my, screw it back together. And I got out of the cast, uh, two months before opening day and I couldn't hold a two pound dumbbell in my hand. So I had to spend all my time in a weight room and it, it ended up working out. I went 17 and all my senior year and we won the state championship. <laughs> so you had a bionic elbow in, implanted. Uh, in your I guess so, because I knocked on wood. I never had a, an elbow problem after that ever about that yeah that well you know what that's the time to get that kind of stuff done if you have aspirations to get it through the big leagues get it fixed get it uh get it solid you certainly were able to do that you get drafted uh by the padres um yeah and uh so as a what i guess you're right out of high school so you're 18 19 years old and you're headed to to rookie ball is that uh was that the first i, I was thing? 17 i didn't turn 18 until after my first year of pro ball so that's incredible i was a, a young uh signee that year and crucky was in the organization as well 
I, I knew him since I was 17. So I've known him longer than I've known anybody in baseball. It, it's yeah. been a, a real fun ride to be able to go through our entire career and still stay connected. Yeah. On behalf of major league baseball, sorry that he was the mentor that you got stuck with for your entire career. <laughs> I drew the really short and wide straw. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. Uh, more on Crecky coming up in just a little bit, but uh, I would imagine, you know, I know you and I know your personality, very outgoing, very confident. And, and that's the way you need to be as a professional athlete, but as a 17 year old, jumping into professional baseball. Is that how you were at the time? Yeah. I, I just really never thought anyone could beat me growing up. And it didn't matter how old they were. If we were playing the same game, using the same rules, I always felt that I could win. Wow. And it was probably delusional, but it's what got me to where I ended up being. There's no way I should have been in the big leagues when I was. I was five and nine in A ball the year before I made the big league team. And I'm still convinced to this day that the Rangers sent me to Puerto Rico to try and blow me up <laughs> because I, I threw two innings one night in relief to close a game, came to the ballpark the next day I was starting. Wow. So yeah. they found out I could throw every day and that's what happened. I went from Puerto Rico to the to big league camp that year. So I didn't have any time off. My arm stayed in shape and I threw 18 innings that year in uh, big league camp. And I gave up two runs, I think, and ended up making the team out of spring training. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what it's all about, right? You just uh, you get you get the opportunity, and you make the most of an opportunity. Next thing you know, the whole the whole world has changed. Your life has changed, and you're in the big leagues. I mean, I literally, Murph, I went from being as far down as I could be. I I left a ball. The way I left a ball wasn't good. I got in an argument with my manager, and it was a pretty serious argument. And I wouldn't pitch for him anymore. Wow. So I told him they had a choice, either release me or, or trade me or move me because I wasn't pitching for that guy anymore. And they moved me to double A the next day. And I threw pretty well at double A. And sometimes you have to make your own advantages and, and make your own breaks. And I stood up for what I believed in that, that day. And I think it worked out for me. And in the end, I ended up becoming what I wanted to be anyway. And that was a reliever. When I got to the, uh, professional baseball and found out starters only pitched once every fifth day, I thought, <laughs> no way. <laughs> no, that, that wasn't me at all. I had to be involved in, in the game to enjoy it. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because I've talked to a couple of relievers over the past couple of months and obviously over the past couple of years, and so many of you have that mentality. Like, you know what, I'm a ball player. And if, if I'm only going to be able to play ball once every five days, I'm not interested. I, I need I need to know that I could help the team win today or every tomorrow. Day. Every when day. When I came to the yeah. ballpark, I fully expected to contribute to a win. And yeah. I that's why I'm so baffled by the way today's bullpens are used because they act like they're just going to hurt these kids, throwing them three or four days in a row. That's mm. just not the case. I was on a team in Texas that in a 13-game stretch, I pitched in 12 of them, and Dale Mahorsik pitched in all 13. That's a So it's just one of those things. If you train your body to do it, you can do it. And the money that's out there right now, it, it's they're paying more money and asking less. And I just don't get that mentality. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, and, and you know, the proof is in the pudding when you take a look at your career because in your first season, so you debut uh, with Texas – 
And in your first season, you led the league in appearances. You had you 80, yeah. you appeared in 80 games that season as a rookie. First of all, what do you remember about uh, the call up? Because the, the, those stories are always great when you finally get that chance and say, all right, I'm going to the big leagues. You, you know, you're, you tell the family and, and everyone packs up and heads on out, right? To, yeah. to, to see it happen. It was, uh, it was stressful. I'll, I'll say that we went through spring training that year. My roommate in spring training was Bobby Witt. Okay. And, and Bobby was a bonus baby. He was a first round pick and electric arm. We went through inst uh, instructionally. We did everything together. So we were roommates, became very good friends. And he's trying to make the team in 86 too. There was a bunch of us rookies that year that were trying to make the team. And, and nine of us did. We had wow. nine rookies in Texas that year. So it was a youth movement. I was in the right place at the right time. But when Valentine finally told, they told Bobby two days before they told me. And I think Bobby just did that to mess with me. And, <laughs> of course. Which just stressed me out even more. It, it was horrible. But it was, looking back on it, I, I went through it with the right people. And then when my family got to see me, the first time my family saw me pitch some professional baseball, was in the minor leagues and I started a game and I walked the first seven guys of the game. <laughs> I was down, down four, nothing bases loaded and the ball hadn't been put in play. Manager <laughs> finally came out to take me out. And I looked at him. I said, did, did it look like I was right on the verge of figuring something out? <laughs> oh, so, that's tremendous. And then the first time I played in front of him in the big leagues was in Seattle. And I gave up back-to-back -back home runs to Jim Presley and Danny Tartable. 464 and 474 on the tail yeah. of the tape. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they traveled a bit, but that's all right. Oh, yeah. I walked out after the game. My father looked at me and said, I had no idea you could throw a baseball that far. <laughs> well, it's amazing that it turns into 11 years uh, in the bigs yeah. and, and with the kind of success that you had. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the 80 games your your first year. Um, was that even a thought in your mind that uh, that you were getting the baseball that much? I mean, is that something that even registered it, back then or you just said yeah you know i'm, I'm you can I'm ask involved. everybody i played with i was pretty much an ass because <laughs> i i fully expected to pitch every night and i was 21 years old and i was pissed if i didn't pitch regardless yeah. of the outcome of the game i just wanted to pitch and I, I became a pain in the butt basically until i finally figured out the the game and how it works and all that but I would rather be the way I was than, than be in a situation where I'm telling someone I'm not available. Yeah. So I look back on it. Yeah, I was a pain in the butt, but I was a pain in the butt that was available. Yeah, a pain in the butt, but uh, with the best intentions because you yeah. just wanted to win baseball games and you wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. I think most baseball guys would be uh, A-OK -okay with, with guys like that, especially nowadays. I, I would hope so, yeah. 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 All right. So nine rookies on that team uh, in Texas. And one of the things that uh, I love about baseball, and it's also changing, but uh, back then being a rookie in a clubhouse, you know, it came with certain <laughs> regulations and rules Oh yeah. With, yeah. with nine young guys in that clubhouse. Um, was it that way? I mean, was it, yes. you know, speak when spoken to kind of thing? It must've been quiet. We, we had guys, uh, you were to be seen and not heard. Yeah. And we had Larry Parrish and Bobby Jones and Bobby Jones, a Vietnam vet. <laughs> so you, you look at guys like this and you, you, there's a lot of respect that goes with that. And anytime a veteran that year said something to me, I just took it 
it was a great it was gospel that's how i okay sure you bet Incavilia, poor ink he fell for every joke in the book <laughs> spring training they, they got him with the three-man lift and i honestly i was in big leagues for 11 years and i never saw another one that was even as came close to what happened to Inky. tell tell folks about that tell them well he was sitting in bobby jones a uh, vietnam vet he could talk so fast he'd make an auctioneer jealous <laughs> but he got to rabbling one day saying that he could pick up take the three biggest guys on this team lay them on the floor interlock them and he could pick them up off the floor and Inky sitting there and he said there's no way you can do that well that's all bobby needed to hear so he sucked him in and right before the game we were playing a spring training game they decided to do it so they got Larry Parrish on one side, Joe Ferguson on the other, Inky in the middle, got all locked up, and Bobby's over there stretching, <laughs> trying to sell it. <laughs> and finally, Bobby said, okay. And everybody else on the team came out of the shower room with every bottle of shampoo, conditioner, every liquid, ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise. Inky could not move. <laughs> And as soon as we got him completely soaked with all that stuff, we took every spittoon in the clubhouse that was all kitty litter and dumped them on top of them. Tremendous. And then said, you got five minutes to be in right field. The game started. <laughs> so great. And he, had, so he had never heard of that, that prank. And then, and no. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to believe it's, it's almost as bad as the batter's box keys. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> going in the bucket of left-handed curveballs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you can find them, let me know. Uh, it, it's tremendous. So it, it, obviously as, as a young guy, uh, growing up in the clubhouse, especially at age 21, I mean, you, that's, that's a young guy, even in, in the, yeah, in the world I of baseball. yeah, I bet, I bet you did, but you know, you think about, uh, those memories and, and how great they are and what a, what a terrific way to kind of get indoctrinated into the game of baseball at age 21, when you have you had vets like that who uh, knew how important the game was, but also knew how important the whole experience was for the young guys, right? I look back uh, on my first couple of years in the league, Murph, I don't think I could have come up with a better group of veterans. Yeah. Charlie Huff, he taught me how to act and how to handle myself. Larry Parrish, same thing. I spent all my time, I'd never talk to pitchers. I mean, Charlie, I would talk to, and I played catch with Charlie every day, but when it came to pitching, I always spent my time with Pete O'Brien, Toby Hara, Bobby Jones, Larry Parrish. Yeah. I probably talked more to Larry Parrish than I talked to anyone about him. How about that? And and the yeah. reason being because you wanted to know what they were thinking? I wanted to know what hitters were thinking. Yeah. Pitchers, I know what pitchers are thinking. Right. I, I wanted to know the other side, so that's how I spent my time. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Folks should do that a little bit more. All right, so so you're with te Texas for a couple of years, and then uh, the move is made, and they send you to Chicago. And, right. you know, I, I don't want to say that's where everything really started to click for you, but obviously you had some terrific years in Chicago. What do you remember uh, about arriving in Chicago? Great baseball town, great, obviously great ballpark to play in. The fans were rabid, and the team was pretty good at that point, too. Well, yeah, I showed up in a big, it was a controversial trade for the Cubs because they let go of Palmero. Yep. And I'm coming in to replace the only guy that I ever idolized in the game of baseball. And that was Goose Gossage. Interesting. 
and I was brought in that spring training to take his job. So I got put in a strange situation there, but couldn't have been better with Goose. Goose is one of the guys I uh, modeled myself after. If I mean, I'm left-handed, he's right-handed, but I like football way more than I like baseball. And Goose was a guy that played baseball like he was playing football. <laughs> yeah. So that's who I wanted to be like. He knew that as soon as I met him, I told him and great guy, really good guy. He ended up, they ended up releasing him that spring, but it was a situation where I got brought into, I was becoming a closer and I was a closer in, in Texas, uh, in 88, but I wasn't treated like closers were treated. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I came here or went to Chicago and, and Zimmer could not have been better. Opening day that year, I, I'm facing the Phillies, actually. And I came in in the eighth, got out of the eighth. Then I had to hit off Bedrosian, which was zero fun. <laughs> I hadn't hit in five years and I had to step up there opening day. And the first fastball, he threw so far by me that I, drag bunted the next pitch and actually put a great drag bunt down but they didn't tell me he won the gold glove the year before (laughs) so he dove fielded it and threw me out went back out loaded the bases in the ninth with nobody out with three broken bat singles and i'm standing on the mound going and mike schmidt's coming up i just watched a story on the tv before the game about schmidt's 51 career home runs at wrigley field and I actually thought about that. He was walking to the plate. Anyway, I ended up striking out the side with the bases loaded and my Chicago career was off. I got brought in. I was cheered when I was brought in. And I was booed after I gave up three hits and I finally struck out the side. And that started everything in Chicago off on its way. And it, it went pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly did. You were an all-star that year uh, in uh, 89. And, uh, you know, I am thinking about the Chicago fans because you go back and watch some of the, the footage from that year. Um, like I said, the ballpark was full. These, the team was good. And, and there was a lot of hope in that city and a lot, you guys uh, were, you know, kind of tasked with that, breaking that, that curse that, that had been hanging over the, yeah. the city of Chicago. And there was a real feeling of, well, Hey, you know what? Maybe we don't have to wait till next year with, with that group of guys. Right. Did you guys feel that in the clubhouse? Yes, we did. Uh, we had a real good group of guys, and we had a couple of rookies that came up that year. Uh, Dwight Smith, he came up about halfway through the year and hit 350. Wow. And then uh, Jerome Walton, I think Jerome was rookie of the year that year. Him and Dwight Smith were one and two that year. Okay. So we had some some rookies that contributed, and we had veterans like Rhino, Gracie, Hawk. Classiest man I ever played with was Andre Dawson. Uh, some really good baseball players and good baseball people. So it was a lot of fun. I ended up saving 36 games that year and we went to the playoffs. It was the first time Don Zimmer had ever made won a division as a manager. And that made me really happy. I bet, you know, you talk about baseball, man, and you've been around uh, many, many guys, but when you think of baseball, men it's hard not to think of a guy like Don Zimmer as uh, you know, the kind of the poster boy, the, the career baseball guy, brilliant baseball mind yes. and, and just a hard nosed coach and, and, and manager. And, and that's the, that's the kind of guys you want to be around, right. As a player. Don Zimmer represented everything about the game of baseball. That was good. 
Yeah. Everyone that ever met him knew he was going to die in his uniform. Uh, I got to know him and his wife, Soot, and Soot knew Zim was in the game for 35 years before yeah. Soot knew that he got a licensing check in spring training. <laughs> this because he went to the, him and Johnny Padres go to the track every time they got their license <laughs> check. So that was I feel so blessed, Murph, to get to that I got to play for a guy like Don Zimmer, yeah. and in Philadelphia I got to play for Jim Fergosi, who right. I absolutely adored. Yep, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, you know what? And and I was going to ask you about Jim because again, you talk about baseball men and and you know guys that uh, on the outside can appear gruff and can be can appear tough and they were but man oh man it's only because they wanted to pull the best out of the guys that that they were that they were managing and that, that there's was no question them, right? about that yeah and they they both went about it in different ways but the ways they went about it i respected both of them in the way they did it uh i grew up under zimmer I, I think I matured a whole lot uh, the two years I got to play for him. Mm -hmm. Loved him. And then I got to go. And Nick Label was the manager when I got to Philly, but he was only here for 13 days. And when I got to Philly, Nick called me in and told me that I would be sharing closing duties with Roger McDowell, which was fine. And then Fergosi took over. And what people probably don't know, Fergosi and I had a history. Uh, when he was managing the White Sox, my best games, I think I had eight saves one year and five of them were against the White Sox. So as soon as Jim walked in that day, he called me in his office and said, you're the closer. And I said, okay. And I just loved, he brought everything good out of me that, that could possibly come out of me yeah. because he trusted me. Mm-hmm. And that the way I pitched, Murph, you know how I pitched. It was one of those things that if you're not a manager that's got a whole lot of intestinal fortitude, you can't even watch me pitch, much less bring me in and leave me there. <laughs> and that was, the, I think, the year I saved 43 and 93, I think Fergosi came and got me once. And when you have the confidence of a manager, because I know I sucked more than one time that year, but he always gave me the opportunity to get out of it and and right. walk away with a W for the team. Yeah, and and you and you stop to think about that, and that is how, you know, with it, with each time that you're able to battle out of a jam that maybe you created on your own, yeah. and your manager trusts you enough to do that. Well, guess what? Yeah, it, it makes it that much easier the next time, and it it, it is something i mean i think that's true in all walks of life where you you know you need to you, you need to fall down and get up on your own not yeah. picked up by somebody else and and figure things out and you know in that era of baseball and certainly with the guys that uh, that were your managers that's what they allowed you guys to do well i i look at it i look back on it and the the pitch count is what is absolutely hilarious to me today because <laughs> there was a time in philly where I threw three consecutive days. I threw an inning each day. And in that three-game span, I threw 100 pitches and gave up one run. There you go. That's for Ghost. Yeah. That's letting me load the bases and him looking out there and go, we don't have anybody else more capable of getting out of this than he is. Because he knew I'd been in it my whole life, so right. it didn't bother me. Right. 
All right. Well, I, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I don't want to get out of Chicago until I talk about one specific moment. Uh, okay. And in talking with Don Zimmer is a big part of this. And uh, you guys were involved in the game late, late in September. And you had a, a pretty comfortable lead in the division. But, you know, there were still they were still important games for sure. Yeah. Uh, you get asked to come in in the eighth inning because you hadn't worked a whole lot in the past week or so. Uh, and he wanted you to get, I don't know, if it was a four out save or a five out save uh, in that game. But the best part about it was that, uh, in you know, in the night. He inning, forgot to double switch. He, he, is that what it was? He he totally yeah. forgot to get you the hell yeah. out of the game. And therefore, you get a chance to to step up at Wrigley and, uh, and take a couple swings, right? Yeah, I actually did. It was two swings. Uh, Don Ossie was pitching, and there were two guys on. And the first pitch he threw by me, I swung at. I swung at every first pitch I think in my career because I just wanted to see what they had and where, how I could change my timing. Right. And it, he threw it by me, and I started a little early on the next one, and he left it up and out, and I hit it pretty good, and it went out of left field. So, ended up being my first career homer, and I still have the video today. And I was going to ask you, do you have the baseball? I no, I don't have the ball. No. I never did get the ball. Yeah, because uh, the, the video the bleachers was the I really wanted. Pardon Is me? that right? I, I said the bleachers were packed out there. So, you oh, know, yeah. someone caught that baseball. I didn't know if you were able to get it back or not. But Yeah, it, I never did get it back. But, they, yeah, it was a full house that night. And yeah. uh, I kept, kept the video for one reason, because it, it shows me walking back to the dugout and the two guys I drove in, one of them on one side and one of them on the other, was Ryan Sandberg and Andre Dawson. So I wanted to be able to show my kids that about I that? drove in two Hall of Famers. Yeah, you did. And and then the rest of the bench in that video is either on their knees, uh, doubled over in laughter. Or, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they because, knew how serious I took batting practice. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly was a light and fun moment, but uh, obviously one you'll never forget. And and I didn't oh. realize that that it was Dawson and Sandberg on the on the bag. So that that does make it even that more much more special. And I'll say this. Um, you know, iconic calls in baseball. There's, there's a hundred of them. There's 150, but there's certainly one you're involved in, in Philadelphia, but Harry Carey's call on your home one was epic as well. I mean, I I'm sure you've heard that, right? Oh, uh, Murph, I got to play with the two best Harry announcer other than Harry Doyle. <laughs> yes, if if they could get too. Harry Doyle involved <laughs> in my, my career, that would have been perfect. But the two Harry's Carey and Callis. Yeah. God, what a career I got to experience with those two guys. Yeah, and and you gave them so many great moments to call, what that home run being one of them, but uh obviously we'll get to 93 now. Let's let's yeah. move ahead because you get to Philadelphia in 91 and you talked about it. First Jim Leva, uh, Leva the Ben uh Fergosi is the manager and you know the team was not very good in in 92 uh which we, we all remember but no we were the worst yeah you're okay you said it <laughs> but in 93 uh there were no expectations but all of these new faces are coming in and this team is being built and uh you know really it started in spring training you guys started playing good baseball in spring training yeah and and in talking to some of the other guys uh the, the 20 25 of you in that clubhouse the 25 plus in that clubhouse believed right out of the the shoot that that something special could be happening yeah. in, in 93 where did that come from because no one else saw that uh i think it just came from a, a real belief that all of us for the most part that team was made up of a bunch of guys that were cast off from other organizations yeah. 
So it was kind of a unifying thing with us. Look, no one else wants us. This team wants us. Let's go out and do all we can to make these guys look smart and and prove ourselves because we all had things to prove. If you go into a baseball season and you don't think you have anything to prove, (laughs) you got a lot of thinking to do. Every year you have something to prove because there's someone coming up behind you that should be pushing you and you should be recognizing. And, and I think that right now, Murph, I think that's what's gone from the game. I look back on that team. We're a bunch of guys that had to prove ourselves. Yeah. Now I look and there's a, I see a bunch of guys that don't believe they have to prove themselves and that's hard to watch. Yeah. I, I think you're right about that. Uh, you know, in, in terms of today's game versus, but I think 93 in Philadelphia was even even more special because virtually every guy on that team had that attitude. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you all had to, and you had a leader in, in Darren Dalton that made sure that, that, you know, folks were following the program. But not only were you winning baseball games, but you guys were, were enjoying the ride as much as any team has ever enjoyed the ride as well. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't all business, you know, you guys certainly said business and pleasure, but when it was time for business, then you took care of business. When, when the bell rang, there were 25 guys standing at attention and ready to go on that team. And I, I look back on it and we did something on that team that I don't think I don't remember ever before happening and I know won't ever happen again. And and that's a three position platoon. I've never seen, I, Fergosi was a genius. I I sit here almost 30 years later and I I look back on that. He pit them guys against each other and got the most out of them. Yep. And I look back on that and honest to God, Mark, that just clicked for me right now to how, how much of a genius he was with those six guys because number one, he got them to buy into a platoon and then pitted them against each other. Yeah. Yeah. And you look at what all three of them, three platoons did. It's ridiculous. Inky and milk drove in 130 runs. Right. How right. do you do that in a platoon? It, yeah. It's almost impossible, but they did it. Yeah, and, and I think the big part of that is that that they all did buy into it, you know, Yeah, because that, that, that's not always the case. You, if you have one guy in that situation and those six guys that is going to be a malcontent, uh, the whole thing can blow up, but but none of them. Absolutely. Yeah. It only takes one. Right. It takes one guy to not be with the program to screw it up. Yeah. And Fergosi was a genius at making sure that one, one never stuck his hand up. Yeah. So you know, there was. I was going to say there's so many magical moments during that season. So many improbable wins that, you know, happened late, some great defense, uh, some, some timely hitting. Is there, is there a moment in, in that season or two moments that you think back to yourself and say, that's when I thought, all right, you know what? Someone's looking after us right now. They both both involved Mickey Morandini. Okay. I knew we were going to win that year. The first series in Houston. We had not touched Doug Jones the two years I had been in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Well, we're down to him in the ninth, and, and Mickey hits a three-run homer off him, and we win. I knew right then that we were going to win. And then later on in the summer, we're playing L.A., and Lasorda just hates me. <laughs> and I've got the bases loaded and nobody out again. And – Mike Sharperson hits a line drive up the middle. This is a base hit. 
and Mickey doesn't dive towards the middle. He dives towards center field, center field and yeah. catches this ball and jumps up and steps on second, turns a double play. And I instantly look into the Dodger dugout because I know Tommy's going to be losing his mind. He is stomping up and down that dugout, calling me the luckiest SOB on the planet. And those are the memories I look back on that are irreplaceable. Yeah. Anytime I got to piss Tommy off, it was a wonderful <laughs> that, thing. It was okay with you, right? Yeah. yeah you know, it's so funny. You know, obviously, Tommy from our area, you know, grew up a, a Philadelphia sports fan and, and yeah. heads out to LA. And, you know, it, in a in a uh, very playful way, the the relationship between Philadelphia and Tommy Lasorda, not all that great, you know. There were no, you know, I mean the fanatic, the fanatic you, for God's get him sake. riled up yeah. with that dummy. Yeah, yeah. But God bless Tommy. I mean, uh, I'm 56 years old now, Murph, and I look back and I try and think about the ambassadors of the game. Yeah. There has been no one that ever lived that's been a bigger ambassador to baseball than Tommy Lasorda. So God yeah. bless him for that. No doubt about it. And you know what? We're, we're still sitting here talking about them today, and, and, and baseball fans will be talking about them 50 years from now, too. So the they legacy, be, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, obviously the legacy will uh, will live on. All right, so we're into July now, and, and the magical season of 93 is, is going on. But even in that incredible season, there were moments where, you know, it felt like time was standing still. You're playing against the Padres. You're not playing well at the time, by the way. You know, you guys have been struggling a little bit. I think you had lost the first two games of that series. There's a rain delay. You got the the doubleheader. And but but again, when you think back to those iconic moments, no one can talk about '93 without talking about 4:40 in the morning. And yeah, and, and I mean, it, it's it, just something that doesn't happen. Right. I, I know it's one thing in my career that nothing ever rivaled as far as going that late into the next day. And, and the thing about it, my dad and stepmother and sister had just flown from Oregon to Philly that day. So they <laughs> the wrong way. The ballpark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Welcome to a nice five hour rain delay. Yeah. So my stepmother went home with my uh, fiance at the time, Irene. So they went home, I don't know, after the first or second rain delay, well, my father stayed. So after the first game ends at one o'clock, I walked up to him in the stands. I said, hey, Pop, the second game starts in 20 minutes. He said, it might start for you, but it don't start for me. <laughs> he said, give me the keys to your truck. So he went out and he fell asleep in the back of my, I have a big, had a big truck that had a bed in the back. So he went to sleep in that. And I came out at 630 in the morning, got in the truck, started to drive. And he said, what happened the second game was ah nothing. Uh, I got the win. Uh, I hit a double at 4:40 in the morning to drive in the winning run. He thought I was lying. Sure, why? Of course he did. <laughs> he, he, he thought I was lying until I got pulled over on the Betsy Ross Bridge by a cop that just wanted to say great job. Oh my God, that's <laughs> tremendous! And that that is so Philadelphia right there. Ain't it? Sixteen <laughs> times in '93, Murph, they pulled me over on the bridge because they knew your truck. Yeah. Knew yeah. my truck. Just want to talk about the game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> only in Philly. Absolutely love that. Uh, yeah. Only in Philly for sure. Um, and, and you know what? I would imagine that uh, when you pulled over, you were more than happy to talk about, <laughs> talk about oh, the game yeah. at that point. Right. But when they got to the door, if they weren't writing a ticket, I was pleased to talk to them. Exactly. Right. I'll tell you anything you need to know, officer. <laughs> exactly. What do you mean? You know, autograph ball. Sure. You bet. Yeah. All right. So, but again, the iconic call from Harry has made that, that particular play 
live on, uh, you know, forever in Philadelphia sports lore. Um, Mitchie Poo, had he yeah. had he ever used that with you before? I, I don't oh, know. God, yeah, he had. OK, he, we I took Harry and five other guys on a trip that year. We had an off day in L.A. one year. We played a Sunday game that we had an off day and we were playing in uh, Frisco. So I flew six of us to Reno. Nice. And we stayed the night in Reno and all we did was gamble. And that's where it started because I got on a pretty good run at a blackjack table one night and Harry started broadcasting it. Of course. <laughs> I mean, it was hilarious to sit at that table with him and listen to him do what he did. And I'll be honest, Murph, I'm going to live on here in, in Philadelphia in infamy for giving up the home run. But I'll be tied to Harry forever because of that call. And that that makes me really happy. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I know immediately after it happened, uh, you, you, you know, the, the World Series happens and this city was I mean, I was a uh, young sportscaster in Philadelphia at the time. I think I was 22 years old um, covering the team uh, uh, part time uh, and and but just so immersed in it because I grew up here and was a Phillies right. fan. Um, the, the city was just, it, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Um, they, everyone was so involved and excited. You'd walk into, I remember being in the, the, the mall and them announcing, you know, that, uh, what time the game was going to be on that night and make sure you were home. I mean, it was just <laughs> the entire city was, was involved. So you say live on in infamy, but I, I want, I know what happened immediately afterwards. And, you know, the way you handled it, I think kind of diffused it very quickly. But at this point, I, do, you, do you look at it as infamy? Because I don't. I think back to that team as just being beloved. Win, you know, win the World Series, lose the World Series. You guys are thought about the same way, I think, uh, regardless. At, at, well, at this point. And, and that's uh, – I have never truly got – I mean, I've always said I've gotten over it and all that. I don't know that I'll ever fully get over the fact that I let down my teammates and let down this city. But the way they treated me after I came back, I don't. I would never want to be anywhere else as far as the people go. Yeah. They they've always treated me so great here, even after that. Yeah. And, and the fact that I've never felt comfortable taking credit for sitting there and answering questions when that's something you should do. I've just, I've never understood that. Why people thought that was special? It was special. If I'd have got up and left. That would have been special, but I always thought if I'd have saved that game, I'd have been more than happy to sit in my locker and tell you how great I was. <laughs> so I better be willing to sit there and tell you how bad I sucked if I sucked. So that's what yeah, well, I did. Okay, but that that is a mentality that not everybody shares. And and you know, I'm I'm not telling you any you anything that you don't already know. In this town, accountability is is one of the most important things. Win or lose. Yeah. Accountability. If, if you can own it, then okay. You're all right in our book, right? Yeah. In, in Philadelphia, if you want to catch all those wonderful accolades you're throwing at you, you better be ready to catch all the darts they are going to be thrown at you when you suck. Yeah. And I did no one in Philadelphia ever said anything about me or called me anything. I didn't call myself that night walking back to the dugout. Yeah. So, they couldn't possibly offend me. Yeah. You know, and, and it is a moment that as sports fans in Philadelphia, again, we'll never forget. 
But I think, uh, and I, and like I said, you know, I've talked to so many guys over the years that were a part of that, uh, that team and that era. And at the end of the day, the, the memories and the, the joy that you guys brought this city that's far, what I take away from far outweighed what, that one particular night in Toronto where it came to an end. And, oh yeah. The way yeah. they made a, treated us during that year. And honestly, the way, way we treated them. Yeah. It, for me, it shows respect for your fan base. When you go out there and every day you're giving an honest effort. And that's if players only understood in this town, you take, you be accountable for what you do and go out there and give an honest effort. You will never have anything bad about you said in this town. Yep. They might criticize. And this is what I try to get across to players. Mark. They booed me, but I always said they had never booed me. They booed my performance mm -hmm. and they have every right to do that. But I consider booing every night you walk out there, regardless of what you do, you're getting booed. That's getting booed. Yeah. For someone to boo me when I suck, that's fans being honest and cheering. If I was throwing strikes and getting people out, they'd be yelling for me. Mm -hmm. That's the difference for me. And they always did that. I could be ball one, boo, strike one, yay. <laughs> so that's just how it went here. And I understood it. Yeah. And because the only thing worse than that is apathy and and yes. there are towns that that have that and it's, it's certainly this is not one of those towns the northeast no. uh philadelphia this is the one city yeah. in the world they will pay 30 dollars to come out and chew your ass yeah yeah <laughs> even if you suck and and players like yourself and so many players on that particular team wouldn't want it any other way and that's no. why i think the connection was so strong between 93 that we sit here almost 30 years later and can recall, you know, specific moments and nights and the way you felt and the way this city felt because uh, that connection was was so strong. You know, that yeah. that one season felt like a decade of baseball in the best possible way. You know, that, yeah, that's after, the way I looked after it was over, it seemed like it took forever. Why you were going, why we were going through it, it seemed like it was a blink of an eye. Yeah, yeah. It was a fast season. It was a lot of fun and a whole lot of memories. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, all right, we're, we're going to start to wrap this up, but I do want to ask you, because I think there's a there's um, maybe folks don't quite understand the, the nickname Wild Thing. That came early in your career. That that wasn't something that, right? That, I mean, that was back when it you came were in Texas, Chicago. Right? Oh, in Chicago. No, it didn't okay. in Texas. It, the movie was released in 89. Right. And I went and saw the movie with Calvin Chiraldi, one of my bullpen mates in, in Chicago. So the minute we walk out of there, he starts in and then we get back to the field and he continues with it. Wasn't a week later. Now the organist has it up at Wrigley. So it was one of those things you got people, they were able to call me something and what they were used to calling me. anyway. <laughs> things we can say in newspapers. Yeah, and I've been, television I've been now. called yeah. a lot worse, believe me. Right. So was it something that it was kind of a badge of honor for you? You, it never, never bothered you at all. Never bothered me. Uh, it wasn't a, a nickname that I don't know if I was in love with it. Just wasn't one of those things. Like I said, it was something for the fans and, and they got to call me that. And 
it made life after baseball a little harder. It's tough to become a pitching coach with a nickname like Wild Thing. <laughs> yeah, do what I say, not what I do. Damn it! It's fine. And 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 that so that's the other thing I wanted to ask you. Your you had a very unique delivery. I mean, it was like um, every ounce of your being was put into every pitch. Well, people don't always... understand that. Yeah, I, I tore my posterior cruciate ligament my last year in Chicago. Okay. I always kind of fell off a little bit because I threw across my body, but my years in Philadelphia without that ligament, I would get to a certain point in my delivery and my right leg would collapse. So I'd have to put my glove on the ground, either that or land on my face. So I chose the glove, but yeah, after sure. I I tore that ligament, I, I didn't have a real uh, great follow through because of the knee and I just never let it bother me. Uh, if there's a will, there's a way. And I always figured if I was mechanically correct before I let go of it, I don't care if I burst into flames after I let go of it. So as long as I'm mechanically sound before I let go of the ball, that's all I cared about. Yeah. And, and Hey, you know what? You figured it out and it worked for you. And, yep. uh, you know, and, and it was, it was, it's fun to watch. It's still fun to watch. And when you go back and look at, look at some of the old videos. All right. So with the exception of, of the one, uh, down and in pitch to Joe Carter, baseball has been, you know, so good to you. Anything, would you change anything of the way it all unfolded for you? Your, your particular glove story, the way it, the way the path unfolded. There's only one thing I would ever go back and change, Murph, and I think most people know it. I'd have never thrown that pitch to Carter out of a slide step. Yeah. That's the only thing I'd change. I wish I'd have just been me. But it, it was me that had the ball and, and me that made the decision, and it's a decision I wish I hadn't made. Well, you know what? Uh, I think all of us can say that about many, many moments in our lives. Yeah. Uh, man, I wish that was a decision I didn't make yeah. at that particular and, and time. Don't, don't sit here and and take away from this that's what i sit around and harp on no i know there that. were so many things in my career that i sucked at that just happened to be the one i would have to change yeah <laughs> i <laughs> i hear you uh and, and if only we could go back and change exactly but i, but I think uh the way that uh, it has all unfolded after that um you know what it, it it was what it was and and again i think back to that year and what it was and meant for this city and you know what Things happen for reasons, and uh, yeah, they do. And I, I'm honestly, I'm very proud to have been a part of the Philadelphia sports scene. It's something that I look at today, and I, I show my kids. They understand it. They under. I've got a, a son that's 17 now that's going to play baseball and football, and uh, he's he understands what Philadelphia sports is like. And if I grow up anywhere in sports, I I like it here because they're rough on you. Yeah. It makes them tough, young. Yep. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, there, no. you know, develop that thick skin. It's going to help you later. You on might as life. well hear it now because yeah. you're going to hear it later. And Absolutely. If you, the better you deal with it, the better off you'll be. Yeah. And that's not just sports. That's, that's everything. Exactly. That's all walks of life. There's nothing that's wrong life. with life. Well, you know what, Mitch, that's a perfect place to end it. Uh, thank you so much for spending a couple minutes with us. I, wow. I, I knew it would be a lot of fun and, uh, and you did not disappoint as, as <laughs> as as always so uh thanks and i hope things are good with you and uh i know philadelphia phillies fans are going to be excited to hear from you uh and uh you know kind of relive the last uh, 30 35 minutes so thanks so much for being part of it you bet more thank you for having me bud all right mitch williams here on glove stories we'll be right back after this glove stories with murph is presented by parks casino sportsbook app 
New users download an app store or click parkscasino.com slash PA and use the promo code MONEY for first bet risk-free up to $500. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, Glove Story listeners. Join me and the rest of Team Murphy for the 34th annual Bend to the Shore Bike Tour. Ride your bike to the beach and then celebrate at the finish line, all while raising money to help fallen first responders. Just log on to bendtoshore.org. That's Ben, the number two, shore.org. And register to be a part of Team Murphy today. And welcome back to Glove Stories. Uh, We welcome in Larry Boa to uh, help us relive one of those great games from way back in 1980, the championship season for the Philadelphia Phillies. And we are looking at a game, Braves and Phillies, Friday, July 25th, 1980 at Veterans Stadium. It was a day game, three o'clock. I'm guessing it was hot, Larry. I don't know if you remember that specifically, but three o'clock in the afternoon, first game of a doubleheader in July it had to be pretty warm, right? <laughs> Real hot, Murph. You know, all those stadiums were alike. And you go to Cincinnati and you go to St. Louis and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh in the middle of the summer. I mean, uh, you're talking over 125 degrees on the turf. And the time that you just mentioned, there's a lot of shadows there. Yeah. Not a good time to play a doubleheader. But back in the day, you know, uh, and we played back-to-back. I mean, when they were doubleheaders, they weren't split then. So you right. played... You play the game, then you make maybe take a half hour and play the next game. But uh, if I remember right, uh, looking back on that, we hit a, a little, we hit a bad spell there. Yes, I don't know what did. the dates were, but we we didn't play very good baseball for a period of time. Yeah, almost a month. All right, I'll, let's set it up. A little background: when we, we spoke to you guys last, uh, you had just beaten the Pirates to go up one game in the National League East. That was on July the twelfth. So in the next 12 games, you lost nine of them and were on a six-game losing streak coming into this game against the Braves. And as I mentioned, first game of a doubleheader. So do you remember feeling, you know, because we've talked about how this team was kind of like given one last chance, you know, either win this year or we're going to have to do something differently. And here you are in the middle of the season, had been in first place and now dropping like a stone. Yeah, we were we were dropping real fast, and the way we were dropping them, Murph, is uh, our bullpen usually is is really good, and we lost some games there. A couple of our starters didn't go very deep. All of a sudden, as a team, we weren't hitting the ball very good, and uh, you know, you start getting behind in the standings going into the middle of July, towards the end of July. It's very difficult to play catch up, and. Uh, we obviously, I know we had a players meeting only, and I know the big guy, Dallas, he had one of those meetings. He didn't have one of his major outbursts, but it was pretty, it was pretty good meeting. So I do remember we had two meetings. One was the players only and one was Dallas. And we're trying to get this thing going. But as you well know, covering baseball, sometimes stuff snowballs, man. And it doesn't matter what you do or the strategy you use or who you bring in, it backfires. And we were going through it. Tough stretch at that time. Yeah, you know, I can only imagine if uh, sports radio was around at that time, what they would have been saying, you know, about this team. And, and you know, and again, being able to look back in retrospect and knowing how it all ends, it's kind of funny. We can laugh about it, but going through it, 
I would imagine it was pretty tough. But Dick Ruthven gets out there on the hill for you in game number one. And uh, he's a guy that was just a horse for you guys all season long in, in 80. And it would be no different in this game. Merv, I'll tell you, besides Carlton, Ruthven was a guy that usually you knew you were going to get at least six innings from, maybe more. Fastball, curveball, slider, change, knew how to pitch, change speeds up and down. Big-time competitor. Uh, I would say that he he was right, you know, obviously not Carlton, but sure. you have a one-two punch of Carlton and Ruthven going into a series. you got to feel good about yourself. And, and Dick was steady all year. You know, I think he, he ended up like he was like 13 or 14 games over 500 the years he pitched for us. But uh, he was a workhorse. He was a big-time workhorse. Yeah, well, he uh, he did yeoman's work in this game, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Let's uh, let's get it rolling because the Phillies got the scoring started early. Bottom of the first, Lonnie Smith leading off, struck out. Pete Rose flew out the center, but then Bake McBride singled, and Schmitty hits a home run, number 26 on the season for Mike at that point. It was off the starter, Larry McWilliams, 2 nothing Phillies. I don't remember – I remember the name Larry McWilliams, but I certainly don't remember a whole lot about him. What, what was he like? Well, when we, well, you know, we, we usually go just like they, they do today. You go over who's pitching against you. And Larry McWilliams was the guy who's a left-hander, had a funky windup, but he got the ball and he threw it. I mean, you couldn't step out of the box. He's ready to go. He got it and threw it. Very deceptive, all arms and legs. Uh, and, and to me, uh, again, a very big-time competitor. But uh, he usually gave you pitches to hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, he, the, big, the big key there, you, make, you try to make him get the ball up in the zone because he had good sink on the ball. He had a big curveball. But he battled, and uh, we knew you had to be ready because if you stepped out or dropped your head, the pitch was on its way. And there was none of this. <laughs> You know, I got to get out of the box or anything. They're ready to go, rock and roll, and yeah. you had to be ready. But and he didn't overpower you. He wasn't overpowering at all. Maybe hitting the low nineties, eight pitch probably between eighty eight with a big curve and change speeds. He knew what he was doing out on the mound, and uh, he Typical he we, when we didn't get him in, in in Atlanta, he also pitched for for the Pirates. So we we used to face him a lot. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, the top of the second, our, our good friend Sarge, uh, Gary Matthews grounded out to shortstop, start the inning. Bob Horner would then walk. Jeff Burrow singled. Then after a strikeout, Luis Gomez doubled off of Ruth. And so 2-1 at that point. But uh, I bring that up because I want to hear your thoughts on Bob Horner and, and what a player he was. Bob Horner, uh, probably in 1980, I think that might have been his best home run year. I think he hit 35 home runs. Good third baseman. He reminded his swing reminded me of Greg Lazinski. Short, compact, very strong. He was a tough out in that lineup. And you know, you look at that lineup. Uh, they had Murphy, they had uh, Burroughs, they had Chambliss, they had Sarge Horner. That was a scary lineup. They could hit the ball out of the ballpark, and you knew you had a good had to have good pitching that day because those guys could hit the ball. And and where we played at the vet. And then when we went and when we played in Atlanta, that ball used to jump down there. So they were a very tough lineup to go through. They did strike out a lot, but when they, you know, it's one of those teams that uh, you make a mistake and they're going to make you pay. 
Yeah, and, and that's the way this kind of game went. Back and forth, top of the third, Glenn Hubbard let off with a single. Dale Murphy, who you mentioned, walked. And then after a double play, Sarge, well, as he would say, he got his. He singled, uh, and he tied the game at two. And then Bob Horner, right on the heels of that, homers, two-run homer, made it 4-2. So you guys are trailing. Uh, we had Sarge on last week on the podcast. Uh, you talk about uh, hearing some great stories, but uh, the, the guy could flat-out hit. And he'll, he'll be the first to tell you, but he certainly could. Oh, he was an unbelievable hitter. I hated to see Sarge come up with men on base. Yeah. You know, if he wants to hit his solo home run, which he was very capable of, he had a lot of home runs. But when he got men on base, he was a tough out. And, uh, you know, it seemed like his concentration level went from about two to 10 when there was men in scoring position. He hated to leave men in scoring position. And you go back and look at his career. He's one of those guys you don't want up late in the game with men on base. If you could pitch around him, if there's a base open, definitely. But uh, outstanding competitor, outstanding hitter. I would say the only minus he had maybe, he was probably an average outfielder. Mm -hmm. But his intensity when he played was off the charts. He wanted to beat you any way he could. I like when I watched him play, I didn't like him playing against us because he always came up big. Yeah. 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 He is that kind of player. And that's, yeah. that's what I remember watching him play um, when, when he was with the Phillies, for sure. He said last week, he was talking about his son and he said last week, I told junior that uh, he got all the money, but I got all the hits. That's <laughs> that's Sarge. That's so Sarge. <laughs> he, he used to tell me that when his, I used to watch his son when he got in the big leagues, he says, can you believe how much money my son is? And he told me and he goes, yeah, can you believe that? He says, I got twice as many hits as him and I got this. But that, that's Sarge, you know? It totally is. All right. Fourth inning, Phillies tie it up. Solo home run by Lonnie Smith and another one by Schmidt. Uh, we talked about Lonnie Smith back in 1980. He gets the start in this game, first game of a doubleheader. And, um, you know, it wasn't an everyday starter for you guys. But when he was in there, man, oh, man, did he produce, didn't he? Well, we talked about this before, like you said. Uh, we had some guys that got called up. Yeah. Usually when you get a guy called up, you wait for your regular to go down with an injury. We didn't skip a beat with Lonnie Smith. This guy could hit, he could run, he could throw. Uh, he came up big all year in 1984. So, you know, really without guys like him and, and, and Moreland and that, we, we don't, we probably don't win this division or get to the World Series. These guys were so important to us. Plus, they gave our big guys rest in, uh, Absolutely. every now and then. And Dallas, you know, Dallas Green loved to use his whole roster. But every time Lonnie played, he was exciting to watch. He made things happen strong individual he could hit the ball a long way pretty good outfielder and uh as you said he, he came up big force throughout that 1980 season yeah you, you don't win world championships in, in major league baseball without having guys who aren't your starters contributing we saw that in 08 i mean we saw it in 93 back in 93 when the guys got to the, uh, right. the world series so you know you need those guys all right, right. The game would stay tied all the way until the 12th inning and and here's why i said uh, about dick ruthman being being a workhorse because ruthman pitched all 12 innings in this game um probably not going to see that anytime soon in baseball nowadays <laughs> right 12th, Murphy, 12th inning and your starters going back out you, you're not going to see that here i'm gonna tell you that right now we can watch baseball for the next 20 years the way the analytics have taken over the game and obviously taking care of your franchise pitchers and that yeah but I will tell you this, uh, this guy always took us deep, but to pitch 12 innings in that heat uh, and, and as infielders, Murph, we knew we were going to get a lot of action. He had a lot of ground ball outs. I think that game, I know we made a bunch of double plays, three or four double plays, because he always 
when he was in a game, you had to be on your toes because he kept the ball down. But to go 12 innings uh, in the in the middle of summer, that I think that sort of tells you about his makeup. He didn't want to come out of that game. And if I recall, we were going through some tough things in the bullpen. And I'm sure Dallas says, you know what, I'm letting him go. And he didn't lose any velocity. He kept pitching. And uh, he pitched a really good game. He really did. He only allowed three hits after the fourth inning. To, and it got, got you guys into the 12th. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, you you had an error in the 11th inning. Um, right. to, to, to lead off the inning, guy gets on. And then immediately, as you pointed out, 5-4-3 double play, one of four double plays you guys uh, turned on that day. And, uh, you know, I, do you remember that moment? Because I'm sure in the 11th. I, just, I don't think I remember. It, was, it wasn't a feeling error. It was a throwing error. Oh, okay. And, and, and I did catch the ball like, I mean, it was an error. There was no yeah. excuse. I, I had time probably to set a little bit, and I threw it away. And I didn't make too many throwing errors. Right. But uh, obviously, when you're going bad, the first thing that comes to your mind, go, oh, no, here we go again. Because you, you can usually make an error. And when you're playing good, somebody's going to, you know, you're going to make up for it one way right. or the other. But we didn't make that many errors in our infield. We had a real good infield. Oh, you had a real good defense back yeah. in 1980, for yeah. sure. Um, all right. So final inning, Boone leads off uh, the 12th with a, the bottom of the 12th with a single. Greg Gross coming in, pinch hitting for um, for Ruthven at that point. Sacrifices the runners are over. Lonnie Smith singles, and then they walk Pete Rose, Bake strikes out, and then Schmitty walks to win the game. It's a walk-off walk. Um, and, uh, man, you know, you guys needed that in the worst way uh, because, because of what we talked about. Nine of 12, you had just lost in the middle of a six-game losing streak. You finally get a win in the 12th. You know, Murph, we were walking up the tunnel, and I remember that I said something in, in, in the way of we needed that win more than we needed oxygen because, <laughs> you know, when you when you see everything start to cave in on you and you know you have a good team and we had that ultimatum in spring training, you guys better win or we're going to break up this team. Right. Those losing streaks, they start weighing on you, and the timing of it was bad. I mean, like you said, at one time we were a game up, and now we're, we're, we're chasing people now. And, uh, but that was a huge win for us. And Ruthven saved our bullpen. There's no question about that. And anytime you have a doubleheader and you get that first game, hey, you, you feel like, okay, we're good. We can use four or five guys the next game. But that was a huge win for Dick. It certainly was, and a big win for the team. I wish I could tell you that things got much better over the next couple <laughs> of weeks, but they did not. We'll talk about that going forward. In fact, you lose game two of that doubleheader, uh, and uh, well, the, the wheels didn't come completely off, but they didn't get any tighter uh, over the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about that coming up on a uh, future episode. But, uh, Larry, thanks for being with us. Thanks for helping us relive this game back on July 25th, 1980. All right, Murph. Thank you. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app. New users download an app store or click parkscasino.com slash PA and use the promo code MONEY for first bet risk-free up to $500. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app and is a production of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director, and our executive producer is Roger Haddon. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of our major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to hit like and subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout the 2021 Major League Baseball season.